This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. If you have your word, copy of God's word before you, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy. We continue in this letter of Paul to the uh, pastor, Timothy. And as we're standing, we're going to read, I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 3, verse, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I uh, was doing great all morning and had a sneeze fest. Time out. in a COVID world. All right. So the question of the day is, do you love God's church? Do you love God's church? And of course, it is Sunday morning. We're in a church building. It is Christmas season. It is the Lord's day. So the answer is, of course, well, yeah. But let's think about that question again. Do you love God's church like Christ loves the church? See, love's a funny word, and in it, so many different meanings in English, so many things, so many different varieties. We look at the Greek, and you've heard sermons on this, on the agape and phileo and other types of love, and yet in English, we just have that one word. So when the question comes, do you love God's church, it is a, a, a good question. It is a challenging question. It is a question that resonates throughout all that Paul writes in the New Testament and all that the other New Testament writers are speaking of at this point But when we ask ourselves, do we love the church of Jesus Christ with a righteous, selfless, permanent, sacrificial, devotional love, we have to think about that answer before we just say, yeah. Do we love the church? Do we love the local church? Now see, that gets a little more particular. Do we love the local church, the church that is gathered here today the, in a building that has a sign out front that says First Baptist Church of Orange Park? Do we love this church? Or sometimes we want to love the church, but the real question is, do we love the church or just the stuff of church? You know, the programs, the events, the age-graded ministries, the community activities, the Sunday school class, the Bible studies, the music, the orchestra, or some other thing that is offered, the fellowships even. All good, and those can be things we love. But the question is, is that why you love the church? Because of the product that the church produces. What if those things that are expressions that we have of how we do things within the body as the church, in the community, in this world, at 1140 Kingsley Avenue and beyond, what if those things that are what we grew up with, you know, Sunday school and choirs and orchestras and hymns and Bible study groups and youth ministries and women's groups and senior trips and luncheons and fellowships. What if all of that ceased to exist? 
What if all that which is peripheral to what the church is, which is still good but not necessarily the church, what if all that ended? What if all the products of the local church stopped? Do you love the church? See, I'm confident that many of us do love the church. But to be honest, I also have to tell you that there are just times I love the things of church. But I want to love the church, and I need to know that I love the church truly because of of what it is, not because of what it does. See, that's a holy love. And it really kind of comes to the question, does, does, does God love you? Well, the Bible says he does. Jesus loves me. This I know. Well, the Bible has told me so. But does Jesus love me for who I am or for what I do? Am I a human being or a human doing? Am I just loved by performing religious things okay? Even as parents, we... We'll tell our children, we love you unconditionally, but sometimes, even though we do love our children unconditionally, and we do, we should, sometimes the message we accidentally send is we love them more if they clean their room, or get better grades, or behave appropriately, and stop picking on their siblings. Do we love our spouses with that sacrificial love? Well, of course, but sometimes the message we send is a conditional love. An eros love. I will love you if, not because of who you are, but because of what you do or how you behave. So do we love the church for what it is, or do we love the modern version of church because of what it offers? So these are hard questions because it gets really personal at some level. And, and it's not a guilt-driven kind of message to say, oh, I guess I'm loving wrong. It's just sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And, and sometimes we just have grown up in a system for so long that we don't think about these things. And then we'll say, well, I want to be like Jesus until we remember he died and rose again. So easy Christianity and easy discipleship and easy religiosity sometimes are just the default setting for many until the crisis hits. So sometimes we answer these questions right. Do you love the church? Yes. So sometimes we answer the questions right, but sometimes we're answering the wrong questions correctly. And maybe we just need better questions. It's clear in this passage that the love that Paul has for the church of Jesus Christ is vital for his existence and for all that he does. Therefore, it is evident in this passage that the love that we are to have for the church of Jesus Christ is to be more than a love we have for our favorite department store or our favorite school or our favorite team. There's something different here. And I must confess, personally confess here, that there are days that I do not feel like I love the church And I'm not talking the buildings. If it was about the buildings, every time we walked around to find more deferred maintenance, I would definitely hate this place. (laughs) That's not that. It's the church. And I'm the pastor. So the question for me in this moment of transparency is, do I love this church? And my answer is, yes, Lord, I do. But please forgive me when I don't. 
Paul loved the church. He loved the church because Christ loved the church. And there is no ignoring this reality as you read through the entirety of the book of Acts and as you then read through the varied letters from this apostle to local churches and pastors of such throughout the New Testament. And there is a devotion to the gathered believers, to the redeemed, to the Holy Spirit birth family of God. There is something unique about the family of God that the world cannot recreate. So thus as we read this portion of this letter from mentor to mentee, from pastor to pastor, from apostle to Timothy, excuse me, a devotion to the gathered believers, to the redeemed, to the Holy Spirit birth family of God. So there is a presumed devotion to the local body in this passage and throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament. And, and the church, now here, here we're going to talk just briefly about the church universal and the church local, because the church universal, people say, well, I love the church, I just don't like the local church. You know, I, I love God. Well, and some people kind of live in that world. But there is the universal church and there is the local church. And when Christ spoke of the church in Matthew chapter 16, it is rightly, rightfully understood as he spoke of the church there that he is speaking of the broad universal church. Now, what is that broad universal church? That broad universal church is that which holds membership of every believer who has ever surrendered their lives to Christ, been born again through the blood of Jesus Christ, has been redeemed by Christ, been filled with the Holy Spirit. That universal church, every Christian that's ever lived, every Christian on the planet today, and everyone who will become a follower of Christ prior to the coming of Christ at the end of time. So that is the universal church. And in Matthew 16, 18, Christ says, I tell you, you are Peter, speaking to the apostle, and on this rock I will build my church, the word church right there. And it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I will build my church here. And a couple of chapters later, with the very same word, he then obviously, clearly, is not speaking of the universal church, but of the local body, and that is different. Matthew 18, verse 17. Because he's given instructions on discipline when people misbehave. Says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's not the universal, that's the local. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. New Christians often find this confusing. And let's be honest, longtime Christians sometimes find it confusing. And in a culture that idolizes individualism, and has grown to distrust organizations. You ever met anybody that says, I just don't like organized religion? You ever met anybody like that? Have you invited them here? They would love it here. <laughs> We're not that organized. <laughs> so anyway, they kind of hate organizational structures. And there are many who, who push against the call for local church membership. I don't know why I need to be a member of a local church. I don't even think it's biblical. I, I believe it is biblical. I believe if you're not a member of a local body of believers, you don't have a pastor. You might as well let the guy on TV be your pastor because he's not doing your funeral and he's not coming to your hospital and the deacons at that church, well, I guess they'll email you because they can't visit you. You've got to be within the local body. There is a need for that. I don't know if I agree with that. Some say that. I think you're wrong. Because I think it's valuable and it is a calling. There is a calling to Christ, a calling to the local membership, the local family, the body of believers, and there is the required one another's of Scripture that are allowed within the local body, the connecting one with another. And I believe that this westernized, individualistic, we don't want to join nothing mentality has fueled, unintentionally, fueled the mega moments of modern Christianity where love of local is swapped for attending in auditoriums with thousands so I can hide. 
Thus, fellowship is traded for fandom and ultimately to the detriment of the local body, every local body, regardless how large. At a very basic level, the Greek word ekklesia means assembly. In Scripture, it is clear that it refers to two types of assemblies, one in heaven and the other on earth. Therefore, the universal church is the heavenly church, the eternal church, the sweet by-and-by church. That's that universal church that includes every single Christian who's ever lived. How do you join that church? You get saved, and then you die. But you get saved, and you're a part of that church. Some tend to think the universal church as here on earth, but loosely connected. But even the writer of Hebrews gives us clarification. The writer of Hebrews, meaning we're not quite sure who wrote Hebrews, regardless if you watch Jeopardy. Because apparently the writers of Jeopardy's questions thinks very clearly that Paul wrote it and, and knows that. But nonetheless, don't get your theology from Jeopardy. There we go. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he speaks of the assembly of the firstborn. There's all that other verbiage. I want you to get that phrase, the assembly of the firstborn, the ecclesia of the firstborn, the church of the firstborn. The church of the saved. Jonathan Lehman is a pastor, author, podcaster, writer, speaker. He wrote this in one of his articles regarding church and church membership. He said, yet a Christian's heavenly membership in the universal church needs to show up on earth. Let that kind of sink in. You remember that little model prayer we keep repeating all throughout our life and on earth as it is in heaven? Your membership should show up on earth as it is in heaven. Just like Christians, imputed righteousness in Christ should show up in works of righteousness. Membership in the universal church describes, as Lehman says, a positional reality. It is a heavenly position. It is therefore as real as anything else in or beyond the universe. Yet Christians must then put on or enflesh or live out that universal membership concretely, just like Paul says we put on our positional righteousness in existential acts of righteousness. It's a lot of words, what's he saying? He's saying to claim membership in the eternal universal church and to ignore and run from membership of the local body is disobedience to the calling that God has for each. And let me just say, when you join a church, stay there. Don't be a serial member joiner, church joiner. I mean, if your membership letter looks like a passport because it has been mailed to so many local churches over the decades, you might be missing the value of embedded membership for the long term with a body in the, of believers locally. Or not, maybe not. Maybe it's just me ranting. But nonetheless, let's move on. If you love the universal church but refuse the covenant, to covenant with others in the local, your love for the universal church is not real love. It's self-serving, designed to keep you at a distance from other believers so that no one can hold you accountable. See, 
To avoid membership in the local body is to avoid any potential church discipline. You do know that too, right? Because the universal church is not going to discipline you. I mean, they may cancel you online, but what's that mean? Discipline is love, and you're missing out on love by ignoring that, which God has called us to. So to ignore church membership and to not love the church local is self-serving. And it is created to avoid that kind of accountability required. And it is designed to leave church as an activity you attend or an entity that produces a desired product rather than the living, breathing bride of Christ, which we have been called to love and to be. You may be saying, yeah, but some local churches are not godly. And to that I say, yeah, you're right, and they ought to be shut down. Surely, there are some really bad apples out there. There are so many examples of bad local churches and instances where sin has crept in, set up shop, and led to fake righteousness for personal pleasure. It's not new. It's been around since the day of Paul. I was reading through this again. You know, Paul, I think it was Mike's sermon that he preached on, was it Hymenaeus and uh, the other that, that was called, I called his name wrong. I don't know how to say it, but uh, the guys that were in the church and leading, but Paul told Timothy, kick them out. And there's another instance in another book, another letter. Here's the thing I, didn't, I never caught till this morning. At one point, Paul thought those guys were good guys. They didn't sneak in saying we're bad guys. They snuck in, got approved, got affirmed, got loved, joined the club, joined the group, joined the class, started teaching, and we're heretics. So yeah, sin has been creeping into the local body since then and always has. It's not new. Even this letter to Timothy, as I said, addressed the pious heretics. It's a never-ending challenge to keep the local church biblically sound righteously focused and fully submitted to the lordship of our savior, Jesus Christ. Have you, ever ha- have you ever driven through our parking lot and had to take your car to get it aligned after going through our parking lot? You ever had to do that? <laughs> By the way, thank you for your offerings. That'll help fix that eventually. But nonetheless, if you drive over here on this side, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm in a Jeep commercial because we're off-roading in the parking lot because everything's doing this. Well, when your car gets out of alignment, and it's like, when, you ever been on the road and you, and you let go of the wheel and you just, not that you should, it's probably illegal and it's not safe. But nonetheless, have you ever driven on a, on, and you let go of the wheel just to see if your car's going to go straight? And it goes, eh, eh, it kind of goes to the right, you know? Kind of like my golf swing, kind of just keeps going. Sometimes in the church, without regular alignment, we just get a little off. Tiny bit. But a tiny bit off today ends up meaning we're this much off not far from now. And then we, what do we do? Continual realignment, a never ending challenge. So Christ's mandate given by Paul here in Ephesians, we're going to Ephesians. Let me look at this, chapter 5, verse 25. Here's what Paul said to the to the to the members of the church. I thought, you know, as I was writing this, gosh, last 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 weekend. Husbands, love your wives. Well, duh. It sounds like a duh until you realize it doesn't happen easily. And it's not automatic. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you love the church like Christ loved the church? Maybe some of the problems is that we have, we have people loving the church like 
so many husbands we know love their wives and that's why our love of the church isn't the way Christ should, shows us to. Because we have bad models of husbands loving wives. Paul then said to Timothy in the short letter, 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, I'm trying to get there. You know, it's one of those things. I'm trying to get there, but if I'm late, I just want you to know, you already know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of faith, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So he's telling Paul, Paul is telling Timothy, I may be late, but make sure you remind everybody of this, behave. It's a good note if you want to write that, behave. Now, Christianity is more than behavior modification. It cannot be simply behavior modification though at times it has apparently been sold as such. Behavior modification without heart transformation is legalism in a cultic sense designed to create audiences of affirmers rather than a family built on truth. Yet when the heart is transformed, everything changes. Actions change when the heart is redeemed. Desires change when the Savior saves. Those that just ain't right, those moments when you say, well, that just ain't right, the way he did that or she did that. It becomes very clear for the child of God to recognize right, wrong, truth, and untruth. Being perfected by the Holy Spirit the moment of glorification, until the moment of glorification when we are taken into heaven leads to seeing things differently than others see things. You have, this, this is very trendy now in our world, these, these red flag moments. Oh, that's a red flag. Oh, that's a red flag. Well, Christians have been given the Spirit of God to be able to have those red flag moments in so many different areas that the world just will not see. Why? Because you have a different set of lenses to look at the world than they do. There is a worldview and there is a biblical worldview. And the cultural worldview sees everything differently. That's every, and here's the, here's the challenge. So many in the local church have picked up the wrong glasses. And they're viewing things from a culturally, cultural worldview rather than a biblical worldview. And thus, what was right and what was wrong is now maybe right. And I don't know if that's wrong. What was a black and white mentality is now a lot of gray, muddled area because we're allowing other influences to change our perspective rather than standing true on the word of God. So Paul says to Timothy, remind him to behave in accordance to how those in the household of faith should. So here comes the question. How ought you to behave in the household of faith? Now, some of you are already going, well, this is about dress code and behavior in the church building. No. Though, I mean, I'm, I'm good with any of behaving in those ways too. But that's not what he's speaking about. This is not Paul's treatise on what you should do when you enter the building. The household of God is not a temple in the center of the city like the Jews had in Jerusalem. The household of God is not a brick and mortar facility. It is not about whether you should be able to have a cup of coffee in certain buildings or not. It is not whether you have to wear a suit or a tie or not. It is not about whether you can wear makeup or not. It is not about whether you should stand or sit during songs. It is about how Christians living in fellowship with one another in the local body called the church, the ecclesia, the communion, the assembly, are to behave in reverence toward our holy God and in love toward one another. That's it. This is the great commandment fleshed out. How are we to behave? To love the Lord to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbors as yourself. Yeah, people, let me, does anybody have, know anybody on the planet that frustrates you? Anybody? Anybody at all? So people are frustrating. Right? One pastor used to call it the EGR folks, the extra grace required folks right? 
You say like in your Sunday school class, there's always that EGR person in the class, that extra grace required. You love them, but you got to give them a little extra grace because they frustrate you. And I've had people say, well, I just don't know who that EGR person is in my class. And then that, that's you. That's because it's you. That's why. If you don't know who it is, see, if you don't know who it is, it's probably you and they all know it's you. So just understand that's the family of faith. That's great. But, but look at this. It's hard to love because people are so frustrating. And I'm frustrating. And you're frustrating. It's hard when no one is behaving. A.W. Tozer, I love how he put this. Let me read this to you. Has it ever occurred, A.W. Tozer, uh, uh, an old dead preacher, there, in case you're trying to research him. Smart guy. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? Now, I mean, we're talking old pianos. We're not talking the electric ones. You've got to tune them, right? And he says, it's amazing when you tune 100 pianos to the same tuning fork, immediately every one of those 100 pianos, they're tuned to one another. They're all tuned to each other. He says, they are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to a standard to which each must individually bow. So therefore, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity, in quotes, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Here it is. Unity in the fellowship is a requirement for the church. But the church that focuses on everybody getting along one with another will never be unified. The church that is focused on just being really nice and appeasing everyone else will never find Christian unity. Unity apart from unity in Christ will never lead to unity, but will lead to continual frustration. Thus, you wonder, why do people just get angry and leave local churches to find other local churches to love for a while before they get angry and leave again? Because everyone's trying to get along with one another, and they're tuning themselves to each other rather than to the one they are to be focused upon. So how are we to behave? By looking to Christ first and Christ only, align with him, and lo and behold, we the church are unified. Look to one another and we will simply chase the wind of false unity, trying to appease one another, and we'll never find that. Let me quickly end up and get, get to this closing. We are to behave and we are also to beware. Beware. Paul gave clear instructions of who should lead the local body. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. To discount this by allowing redefined cultural desires change the word leads to a liberalization of scripture that results in local churches who have forsaken the truth and eventually will hopefully shut their doors. Thus, buildings that say church on the signs are therefore absent of the spirit of God. And they are churches in name only. Wrong leaders in the local body hurt the flock for generations. Do you understand that? When the wrong person is in the wrong position in a local church, even when he is kicked out, arrested, thrown away, got out, run out of town, the church suffers for decades. We've been there. That's part of our history. Cloudiness on the calling of leaders results in the categorical positioning of the unqualified 
Cloudiness and the calling of the leaders in the church results in categorical positioning of the unqualified. Thus, someone gets a title but should never hold it. Thus, the entire church suffers and sheep are hurt physically at times, but always spiritually and often emotionally. The church is called here by Paul the pillar and buttress. That's a foundation. That's an, a, a, a term used here to, to show how firm it is, how solid it is, the foundation of truth. This architectural metaphor reveals that what we believe, what we teach, how we speak, how we act, all matters. Behave accordingly and beware of lies. For this is what we live for, the truth. This is what Christ lived for as he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what Christ died for, the truth, the church, his church, for the glory of the Father. Christ did not die for a club. You understand that, right? There's a lot of good deeds clubs in our world, in our community. I'm part of some, but he didn't die for the clubs. He didn't die for a Bible study group. You may be meeting at a Bible study group that's very intentional and very good and very wonderful and you gather weekly somewhere and you open the word and you study, I mean, with people from other churches. But he didn't die for that, just so you know that. Christ did not die for your parachurch Bible study group. Christ did not die for any parachurch organization that meets in the schools or in the business place or anywhere else. He didn't die for that. He didn't die for that weekly intensive teaching group. He didn't die for your children's ministry or your youth camp or your senior trip or youth event or for your choir. But he died for the glory of the Father and the redemption of the ecclesia of the church. And when we minimize the local church to make it equal to all those other different organizations, even when we say, I love my Sunday school class, I just don't like the church, you're in sin by even saying it. Because he didn't die for your Sunday school class. He died for the church. I fear we as a culture of Christians have so minimized this reality that our gathering together on the Lord's Day, and I know we've squeezed it down to one hour, and that messes up some people's schedules. I get that. But by gathering on the Lord's Day, as we have been commanded to do in Scripture, has become optional in our culture, and we will do it if there's nothing else on the calendar. Our worship of family, I'm not talking family worship. We promote that. But worship of family is idolatry. So we end up worshiping family time and fun time and rest time and kid time and me time and all of that time supersedes our time with God and with his church. This is not a guilt trip. This is a revelation of a slow generational slide into a church meant world where church is little more than a performance and another thing to do rather than the beloved assembly of the redeemed. And I am as guilty as anyone else of losing sight of this. And by the way, just because you are having a, a 100% attendance every week doesn't necessarily mean you haven't lost that reality as well. So beware that it's the enemy's tactic. And let's talk about the beloved. In verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That would be what we've been singing about all morning. I mean, that, that, isn't that why we probably should sing Christmas songs at other Sundays throughout the year instead of save them for one month? Shouldn't we come and adore him in March? Shouldn't we think of the incarnation in July? I think I should. And I don't think we should minimize what we do in December. I just think we need to add a little more. 
It's part of the fullness of the story. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul was overwhelmed with what he called the mystery of godliness. This makes no sense. That's why it's a mystery. That God would love us so much that this would be the way he would redeem us. It makes no sense that, let me just say, you, you know your own thoughts and how you feel and your own sins, right? You, do, you, you know where you don't measure up. And yet God still wants you. What a mystery that is. That he wanted me and his family. That he invited me in. That he redeemed me just as he did many of you. How humbling that is. How amazing that is. Christ, for the glory of the Father, loved his church. And the local church is not an accidental, man-made creation to get funds from people. That's not the purpose of it. We are God's representation of his bride in this community to show love to him and one to another in unity because we're tuned to him. We gather this morning as the church of Jesus Christ that gathers at 1140 Kingsley Avenue on the Lord's Day at 1045 to celebrate that and to thank God for his grace.